It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Podcast Network, I'm Dana Perino, and everything will be okay. And welcome back. Last week, we spoke to Olympic gymnast, mother, and author Shannon Miller, and she was so inspiring when talking about finding your passion, taking the risk to see your goals come to fruition, and she gave me tips on how to get back into my headstand practice, and I am putting those to good use. My guest this week is someone who is constantly setting new and ambitious goals for himself. Before you can do the big thing, you have to get the basics right. This means making good personal decisions a habit, being thoughtful about your choices, embracing the decision-making that comes with adulthood. Instilling personal discipline over your choices is a way to find more freedom. How? Well, if you have a code that you live by or a goal you're trying to reach, then decisions that would help you keep your code and achieve your goals are easier to make. Ben Shapiro is the host of The Ben Shapiro Show and editor-in-chief of DailyWire.com. He is the author of multiple New York Times bestsellers and is releasing a new book called The Authoritarian Moment, How the Left Weaponized America's Institutions Against Dissent. We discuss the thinking behind Ben's new book, and he shares his advice on speaking your mind, the flaws in the modern-day hiring system, and as a husband and father of three, we explore how he manages a work-life balance. I have so much to talk to you about, but I want to start with your latest book, The Authoritarian Moment, How the Left Weaponized America's Institutions Against Dissent. Um, maybe just give us a synopsis here of the book, and then I'm going to ask you about when you find time to write it. So, so the basic idea of the book is that more and more Americans, and this is true for everyone on every side of the political aisle, with the exception of people on the radical left, feels as though they are not allowed to say what they actually believe in everyday life. If they put it on Facebook, they're afraid their friends are going to to treat them poorly or that their employer is going to fire them or suspend them or call them in for a talk. Uh, they're afraid that if they if they say what they think at church, even church leaders will get uptight with them. Uh, they're, they're, they believe, I think correctly, that the major institutions in American society are weaponized against them. And, and what the book really is about is how that came to be, why they're not wrong, why so many Americans are, are correct to believe that these institutions have been taken over by a pretty radical core of, of hardcore leftists and why it is that so many people acquiesce to that, and then how we can push back against that. It's, it seems it's so interesting. Have you noticed that like you wrote this book, but then it's like the left. Some of the authors um, from the left or columnists are writing about the authoritarian moment and saying it's the right that wants authoritarianism. Have you noticed that? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yep, yep. And, and, and that was one of the things that I wanted to write about as well is, there is this take on the left that there is this rising authoritarian right that is that is interested in government running all of our lives or, or is interested in perverting the the institutions of democracy. And they use as their sort of case in point the evils of January 6th. And, and as I point out in the book, January 6th was an act of evil. I mean, it was a bunch of rioters who are attempting to stop the processes of democracy from, from moving forward as constitutionally mandated. 
And that was really terrible. It was a riot. And then the rioters were all arrested. Uh, the, the House was cleared. And then Republicans, led by Mike Pence, actually certified the election. Mitch McConnell obviously went out there and ripped on the rioters as well. And that was pretty much it. Right. It was it was all Republican secretaries of state in places like Arizona and Pennsylvania and Georgia that were certifying these elections. Uh, but meanwhile, it was within the next week that the left basically decided that the evils of January 6th required them to get quite authoritarian in their response. You saw Parler, for example, not completely offline by Amazon Web Services on the grounds that Parler had been used to plan the events of January 6th. Well, what the data actually showed is that Facebook and Twitter were used more to plan the events of January 6th than Parler. But there was no retaliation by by Amazon Web Services against either of those outlets. You didn't see a mass call by the right for the quashing and censorship of the left uh, having to do with, with November 4th, but you did see that in the aftermath of January 6th from a wide variety of Democratic sources. You had Democratic Congress people who were sitting there talking about how we might need to revise how we think about misinformation and freedom of the press in the United States. Uh, and now, obviously, we, we have the President of the United States openly admitting that he's doing something he knows to be unconstitutional in this in this new eviction moratorium, but he's going to do it anyway because hell, it may be worth it. So, you know, if we're talking about authoritarian tendencies, that does exist on all sides. But when it comes to who actually has the levers of power to to effectuate this sort of top-down authoritarianism, quashing of dissent, it is the left, not the right. Um, what does history tell us about these moments? Is there anything we can learn from that? Yeah, I mean, I think that the the thing we can learn is that. The people in the middle are the ones who get to decide what happens next. It's not the radicals on either side. It's the people in the middle who have to decide whether they are more interested in upholding the institutions of our democracy than they are in moving along with people they may agree with in terms of policy. So I think, for example, the moderate liberals are going to have to decide. They agree with many members of the left on sort of end goals, politically speaking, but they're going to have to decide whether they are willing to tell the, the radical left, listen, we may agree with you on that stuff, but we're going to put that off for the sake of of having a common republic, we may get to where you want eventually, but it's going to be a little bit slower. But at least we're not going to be ditching individual rights and freedom of association uh, and the ability of people to live with each other. Otherwise, the, the, you could see the, the center left say, OK, we'll move along with the left because we like our priorities. And if all this other stuff has to go out the window, then I guess we'll have to do that. So people are getting ready back to go back to uh, school, uh, concluding uh, college, of course. And um, I get asked this question quite a bit when I um, do any sort of book events or speeches, and I don't have a good answer for them. So I thought I would ask you. Um, and that is for people who are maybe worried that their children uh, and they're maybe they're, even if they're adult children at college, that they're afraid to speak their mind. They're afraid of the consequences of what could happen to them. Um, and they ask me, like, what should I tell my kid? And sometimes I just don't know what to say. How do you answer that question? So usually what I say is that you have to pick your spots. And I think this is true in virtually all of, of life. You have to decide the purposes of conversations when you, when you enter into them. And when you're on a college campus, you have to decide who your audience is, what's the purpose of the conversation. So if you're in class and the teacher says something you don't like and you mouth off, that's, that's fine. I mean, that, that's usually fine. When it comes to actually filling out the test, the only person who's going to be reading that test presumably is the teacher. You're not going to convince the professor of your particular point of view. So giving them baton to use against you seems like a really poor waste of time, a, a waste of resources. Now, I'm in, in sort of a running argument over this with, with my friends, Dennis Prager and Jordan Peterson, both of whom say you should write exactly what you feel. But I will also note that there, there is an element of practicality here and getting yourself you know, a C in philosophy because you wrote what you think as opposed to what the teacher wanted to hear 
is a misunderstanding of, of what colleges unfortunately have become, which is basically credentialing centers. And so, so long as they're credentialing centers, you're there for the credential and handing the club to your opponents to, to hit you with doesn't seem like a smart idea. You had it recently, um, I don't know how much you've talked about this publicly, um, though I do listen to the Ben Shapiro show every day. Um, you have some thoughts about education and uh, university and, and who should be going. And we uh, recently met this young woman, this is an example, um, she went to a state university out west. She got a degree in sports management, and she has $40,000 in student loan debt. She's now 30 years old. She's not at all working in sports management. She's working, um, has got a good job, full-time job, but um, working as a dispatcher for a large company that has a fleet of trucks. Um, you know, when I think about her, like, should, should we have encouraged her to get a degree and go $40,000 in debt for something that she was unlikely to do? For, for a living? I mean, not everybody can be Jerry Maguire. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I think that what we have is a radical misalignment of how employers actually employ and how they hire people. So I think a lot of employers use your college degree as a, a sort of basic IQ and dedicated and, and you know, test of dedication. That, that if you got through four years of higher education and you went to a really solid school, this means you are smart and this means you're also capable of working hard. Well, I don't see why employers should have to base that on your performance in college. I think apprenticeship programs coming out of high school for a lot of folks would be significantly more useful. Now, that's not talking about people who are going to be engineers, or people who are going to be doctors, people who are going to be mathematicians. Um, but it is talking about the vast majority of other people who, again, are not going to be English professors or or really are not going to have careers in the, in the theater arts. The truth is that how many you know sports agents actually went to school in sports agenting? The vast majority of sports agents that I know about are people who either went to law school or they're people who got into the business of sport, got to know a bunch of people who are athletes, and then said, what if I rep you? Uh, and and that, that's true, I think, for most people. Most people don't know how to do a job until they actually go and do the job. So accelerating now would make a lot of sense. The problem is that the perverse incentive structure means that a lot of people are going to college who don't need to. Colleges have every intention of continuing to just churn out these degrees because obviously it makes the money. And there, there is a political aspect to this, which is a lot of the people who are very interested in everybody going to college are, are highly interested in everybody learning the sort of elite language that gives you entrance into the, into the society that you want to be a part of. And I think that that's bad. I think it's elitist. I think it's unnecessary in the vast majority of cases. And that's why at Daily Wire, you know, we don't screen for, for college education. We have lots of people here who, who didn't actually go to college or finish college. In fact, yeah, the, the Daily Wire was founded by three people, me, Jeremy Boring, Caleb Robinson. Two out of the three of us didn't finish college. Right? I went to law school, but, but the other two uh, either didn't finish college or didn't go to college at all. So that, that kind of demonstrates that success is not necessarily related to where he went to college. Mm-hmm. We'll be right back with more of this interview after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. You know, so I, one of the things I like to do on this podcast is ask uh, parents, of which you are the father of three, um, and one daughter, correct? Yep. Yes. I have two daughters. Actually, I have two daughters and, and one son. Oh, wait. How did I miss that? I, 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 the, the, the youngest is a daughter? Yeah. Ah, she, I haven't she, met her yet. <laughs> I haven't met yeah, her exactly. yet. That's, that's the problem. You met the other two. <laughs> I would look forward to that. Um, so when you think about raising uh, them to be you know, strong, independent young people, d- what did you learn from your own childhood about 
what your parents did in terms of enabling you to be Ben Shapiro? Because I always think this, if you look at somebody as successful as you are, that they must have recognized something early on in you. And were there things that they did that you would like to emulate or share with others that they can do with their own children? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there are a few things. One, they always tried to put us around, me and my three younger sisters, they tried to put us around smart people and people who knew more than they did about a particular topic. So they were constantly kind of assessing whether they knew enough about a topic to speak about it. And if they didn't, then put us in a room with somebody who knew more than they did. And I think that was really, really useful. Uh, the second thing is that they really, really put an emphasis on how hard you work as opposed to kind of what your natural talent level is. Uh, and so they were constantly putting us around people who were challenging us and also people who, who valued raw IQ a lot less than the amount of work that, that you put in yourself. Uh, a formative experience for me is when I was in middle school, I went to a magnet school called Walter Reed uh, in North Hollywood, and you had to have an IQ test to get in. So everybody who was in that particular magnet program, the highly gifted magnet program, had a very, very high IQ. Uh, like several standard deviations above the the American average. And I was, I, I made it into the program, but I didn't like blow anybody away in terms of like being at the top level of IQ in that program. There, there were people in that program who had literally 180 IQs, 185 IQs. Uh, and one thing that I quickly learned is that it really wasn't about the IQ beyond a certain point. Uh, a lot of those people just weren't willing to work hard because they had such unbelievable natural gifts that they thought everything was supposed to come easily to them. Whereas I who was grinding it out uh, was doing better in, in some of the classes than they were. And, you know, I, I sort of realized at that point that, yeah, you need, you know, raw tools, but you know, raw tools aren't going to make you a major league baseball player. You have to really put in the hours. You really have to put in the work and you have to, I think more than anything, recognize your own flaws. Because one thing that I, you know, hanging around with smart people, which is what I've been doing for a very, very long time, whether you're talking about Harvard Law School or whether you're talking about even kind of what I do on a daily basis, Hanging around with really smart people, one thing that you notice is that the big flaw among smart people is they think that they know all the things. Uh, they, they're so smart that they think that they know everything there is to know about everything. And if there's one thing that we can learn from capitalism and uh, and sort of the, the Frederick Hayek view of, of economics in the world, it's that diffuse knowledge is always going to be richer than specific knowledge. There, you might be the expert on the thing that you're the expert in, but the crowd is always going to know more than you on pretty much everything else. And And so... That, that means that there, there needs to be a lot of humility when you approach these topics and an understanding that you need to do your research because the next person you run into may know more than you. Is there a topic that you feel like you'd like to learn more about now? Like, I have so many. I feel like I wake up every day and think I know less than I did the day before. I always feel like I'm behind <laughs> yeah. or that I'm missing something or that I got more to learn, I got more to read. And I honestly feel like that, like I'm in uh, slipping, <laughs> slipping in that, even though I feel like I read, you know, 10 hours a day or listen and, and try. But um, is there a topic or area that you'd like to learn more about? Yeah, I mean, th there are so many of them. And, and my book pile is ever growing. Uh, it, it's one of the big problems in my sort of marriage is that I have a book pile on the side of my bed. Uh, it has existed since I got married. Uh, and it's usually about 30 books and I'll kind of whittle it down to 15 and then I'll find it's then exploded up to 45 because you know, <laughs> this is a problem for everybody who loves to read is that mm -hmm. you, you'll see a book on Amazon. You'll be like, I know I have these other 15 books, but if I forget about this book, then I'm not going to remember to buy it. So I'll just buy yeah. it now and stick yep. it on the nightstand. And suddenly you've got, you know, 45 books. Like when we moved from LA to Florida, I gave away like 5,000 volumes. And I'm pretty <laughs> sure that since we've moved to Florida, I think I've accumulated another several hundred volumes. So it's, you know, that that is, it, there's so much to learn. There's so much that I don't know, obviously. Uh, you know, the, the one that I've gotten very interested in recently is uh, I was speaking with some people who are 
very big into cryptocurrency and I realized I knew absolutely nothing about cryptocurrency. I kind of knew the very basics of how it worked. And I did a, a video on YouTube about how it works on a very basic level that, that's got a couple million views, but I'm not, I'm not an expert in it. So I asked these experts to send me reading lists and they sent over you know, thousands of pages of reading. And I asked my assistant to print out all this stuff. And she just brought in all these binders. She said, do you really want this? I said, well, yeah, I mean, this is how I get good at things. <laughs> this, is, this is how I at least know things. Uh, and so I'm, I'm kind of plowing my way through, through that right now. Well, I look forward to um, having more of those. Um, I just saw recently um, somebody that you and I both know, Ashton Kutcher, uh, did these videos. I don't know if you've seen him. He put them on Twitter. <laughs> and it's where he takes like, he'll say, um, hey, Mila, what does blockchain mean? And then she explains it in normal English. And I was like, okay, this is the content I need to get into the cryptocurrency uh, debate. But what I'll do is I'll let you read all of that. And then I'm going to listen to the Ben Shapiro show and have you help <laughs> me understand it as well. Um, maybe just the last question, which is a lot of people, young people in particular, really focused on how do they find a good work-life balance? And as I mentioned at the top, I don't know how you find time to do all that you do, but you do, and you do it every day, and you have a wonderful family life and, and great personal friendships as well. So do you have a secret or advice for anybody on that? So my, my only advice, and this is something that I've gotten better at over the years, is you cannot multitask. Multitasking is a myth. There's no such thing. You're either doing a thing or you're not doing a thing. There's no time in your life where you're actively doing two things well at the same time. It just doesn't work that way. And so that means that when you're working, you really need to block out all distractions, no phone calls, turn off the internet if you're writing, and just sit down and do the things. If you get distracted, you're going to end up wasting an awful lot of time. And, uh, and if you're with your kids or you're with your wife, then you really need to put away the phone. You really need to turn it off. I mean, this is why you know you, we, I've been sort of forced to do that via religion because that's what Sabbath is, what Shabbat is. But you know, that wasn't enough. It, you know, I, I would find myself browsing Twitter all the time a couple of years ago. And my wife said, it's making you unhappy. Why don't you just uninstall it? And I realized I could do that safely. Like the world would continue to spin and I could check in, you know, every four hours and see what was in the news. And that was plenty. I didn't need to continue to scroll and check my notifications and get obsessed with all of this stuff because there was really no point. It wasn't making my life any better. And that did allow me to, when I sit down at dinner with the kids, you know, I do my best to, to actually put the phone away. I don't always succeed, but put the phone away when I'm playing with the kids, take the phone, put it in the back pocket, leave it there. Uh, and and that makes just in a world of difference. When you're there, you need to be there. And and obviously, how you chart out your time, you know, you, you need to spend time basically at the beginning of every day figuring out what you need to do and how many hours you need to do it. And then you need to block out that time and just spend that time. But being very organized and methodical about how you block out time and then making sure that whatever is your priority at that time is the priority with no other priorities competing. Uh, to, to me, that's that's been the most successful way for, for me. I love it. I love all of it. So um, everybody should listen to the Ben Shapiro show, which I do every single day. You walk me back and forth to work. I don't know if you know that. You walk me to work and back when I come back to do the five. <laughs> that's very nice of you. <laughs> um, well, and then, of man, course, that's awesome. the authoritarian moment, how the left weaponized America's institutions against dissent. Um, ben Shapiro, you're amazing. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks so much. Appreciate it. I love listening to Ben Shapiro's podcast, but it was a real pleasure to have him on mine, and I look forward to the next time. Make sure you subscribe to this series wherever you download podcasts and leave a rating and review. I'm Dana Perino. Everything will be okay.
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. Subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to Fox News Podcast shows ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or follow wherever you get your podcasts.